Welcome back to another episode of Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein, and this week we take a look at how technology is transforming the healthcare space. If this conversation with MyDoc CEO Dr. Snehal Patel is any indicator, the coronavirus pandemic has given the health tech sector an unasked for boost. From Singapore to China, telemedicine is taking a load off bricks and mortar hospitals scrambling to care for COVID-19 patients. Have an eye infection? What about refilling a prescription? Concerned that you might be COVID-19 symptomatic? Perhaps you say to yourself, this is not the best time to frequent a hospital or clinic. Well, now you have options. In Singapore alone, there are nearly a dozen telemedicine providers. Download an app, register, and within minutes, you're in a video consultation with a live doctor. He or she can diagnose and prescribe what you need. And here's the best part. Any medication, if required, can be delivered to your home. Answer the door, hold up a QR code acknowledging receipt, and you're back on the road to health. It's simple and affordable, and yet some habits die hard. For many, there's face-to-face appeal of a doctor's visit. Maybe appeal isn't the right word, but you get my meaning. Some discussions are simply better had in private. Doctors are trusted with the most sensitive and, in some cases, life-confronting matters. There's also the hands-on aspect of the profession. How many of us know that general practitioner who instinctively reaches out to feel for a pulse, touch your forehead, and then offer a few sage words of advice? Some find that comforting and may not be ready to give it up. Others, myself included, would be happy to never set another foot in a doctor's office. You'd think that if the convenience didn't sell you, the lower cost would. A consultation on any of the consumer available services here in Singapore is as low as $12. Prescriptions and delivery are usually extra. That's about the same cost as walking into a public health care clinic and one-tenth the cost of paying a visit to a private doctor. To find out more about why it's taken so long for telemedicine to catch on, I asked Dr. Patel to discuss both consumer behavior and healthcare sector reticence. There's an interesting trend uh, occurring out there in the market, and it has to do with digital healthcare and telemedicine. And I'm hoping you tell us a little bit about this. Uh, the idea of telemedicine has been around a long time. Would you mind explaining what it is and what it is not, and why it's taken so long for the idea to take hold? Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. I like to start off any of these kind of conversations with a slide that I usually give when I'm giving talks and in sort of forums. Uh, I usually start off with a slide from a, uh, a newspaper that no longer exists called Radio News. Um, and it, and the, there's a cover page from 1924, which talks about the radio doctor will see you now. And I find it pretty interesting because what it sort of indicates and to your question, telemedicine has been an idea that's been around for a very long time. Since 1924, when it was front page, people were expecting it to be around the corner. And to your point, it has taken a very long time for us to get to where we are now today. My sense is the reason why that is obviously multifactorial, but the biggest driver, I think, was we simply didn't have the ecosystem in place to support telemedicine delivery until very recently. Um, we all know about the smartphone revolution, um, the ability to have 4G connectivity, even in small rural parts of Asia. All of these things were really important infrastructure to make sure that telemedicine could be delivered in a way that is starting to really expand today. So, so infrastructure, Stanley, you're saying bandwidth. Is that primarily the issue? Well, I think that's one of the issues. and it's, it's a key one because, remember, one of the biggest and most important things about anything in healthcare 
uh, is the need for whatever you're bringing in in terms of an innovation, a new model, to be able to uh, cross the chasm of trust. Uh, it's something I think that gets uh, lost in sort of our tech hype these days and that folks are, you know, we can use tech for a lot of things and it can revolutionize and disrupt. But in my view, healthcare still, ha and it's part of the reason why lots of folks, including venture capitalists, tend to be a little bit frustrated with health tech until recently, uh, is that, you know, for some reason you can have unicorns all over the place with e-commerce, but you really can't, or it hasn't happened in, in, in healthcare. So I do believe that one of the biggest challenge was the adoption of, of consumers. So if you cannot sort of make people comfortable with a new model, they tend to revert to what they've done every since they were you know, revert to type. And you know, telemedicine. So to your point, you know, one of it is really lack of infrastructure, which I think has been solved. But until recently, if you don't have that infrastructure to provide broadband connectivity where patients can see their doctor, it's one thing to be able to see someone in a white coat and talking to them providing advice where they they feel more comfortable and they can trust that this particular approach may be something that can complement something that they are used to, as opposed to, you know, prior to the ability to have broadband connectivity, where they did have like Colin, and they still do, have several services that provide, you know, sort of t just simple audio chats and things like that. That's a little harder for, I think, consumers to get their head around so you do need i think you did need that infrastructure is it the idea to replicate as best as possible the face-to-face -face experience in order for people to make that leap from you know say let's say uh, real world to the virtual world they need to have a mental map and so they need to understand how does this mental map of this new approach fit something that i'm familiar with when people go from the experience that they've had ever since a child you know, walking into a doctor's office, seeing a, a doctor in a white coat, you know, examining them, providing them with medicines, and they walk out. That's a very hardwired sort of expectation that consumers have from healthcare. Uh, when we go from that world to the virtual world, you need to try to create it, or you have to try to make it as uh, as familiar as possible initially, until people become comfortable enough in sort of approaching uh, healthcare in this way. In which case you can do more, you can sort of go off and become a little bit less uh, dependent on those initial mental models. Now, that being said, I think what's happening is we're seeing that, that once you have those initial experiences, being able to do things like chats and, and other sort of modalities to connect with, with patients becomes much easier because you've already built in a new mental model, which uh, consumers and patients can sort of use as they, as they you know, sort of explore this new, uh, much more convenient access point. So it sounds like technology, uh, the ability to be able to, to deliver a service with high bandwidth, high quality, lots of uh, bells and whistles, the patient uh, being willing and prepared to be in that environment, as you say, because of the mental model they've formed and the relationship they, they have in place. And third, regulatory. Tell us a little bit about government regulations and the degree to which that's held back or prevented the growth of telemedicine. So, uh, very good point. Uh, I would say, you know, the U.S. and other markets have been in the forefront of telemedicine adoption, at least from the regulatory perspective. And, and what about, what have they done that uh, has not been done in Asia Pacific to date? Well, interesting. So, I'll get to that. I, I think what the, the, so the guys in the other markets have done is that they really have tried to make the argument that, you know, telemedicine is a great way to help reduce the cost burden around primary care, but also improve convenience for the end user. The regulators have actually looked at that 
fairly skeptically um, in other markets, saying, "Well, you know, is that true? Are we? Are we? Can you actually get enough information from a telemedicine consult that you can in in, in an office environment? And how do you sort of how do you sort of split that in a way that you're balancing the convenience factor with the safety issues?" Um, I think in a weird way, we actually have a huge advantage here in Asia Pacific. And the reason being is that we've had the ability to spend, and we've also had, in my view, the benefit of very enlightened regulators, uh, especially in Singapore, that have been spending time listening and focusing and understanding what other models and other, world, and other parts of the world have, have been able to, to, to create. And I, to your point, I mean, it's, it's until recently, because there's been a long period of time of let, let's listen, let's understand before we jump into this, that I wouldn't say that regulations really held back, but they weren't encouraging. If I, if I can go through the specific regulations across most markets in Asia, with a few exceptions, very few initially said that you cannot do telemedicine full stop. Um, Japan, I believe, has something like that, uh, Korea, but nothing in Southeast Asia, from my understanding. Most of them are pretty vague. A lot of them had guidelines, which sort of indicated, oh, best if you go in person first. But, you know, they weren't particularly encouraging. So I would say that your question around regulations is, is twofold. One is it's what the regulators say you can do and what you can't do. And then superimposed upon that is a fraternity of providers you know, or medical practitioners who tend to skew pretty conservatively. So if I were to say, OK, you, I'm not going to tell you yes or no as a regulator. Most physicians tend to look at that as, OK, I'm not comfortable. So I may not. I will stay away from that for now. So. It's an interesting point. It's both regulatory, like the actual written word on the page of a, of a, of a piece of legislation or some sort of uh, act, but it's more the interpretation by the providers that ended up sort of holding back, I think, a lot of adoption um, in this space. Do, do you feel that that's really about the quality of care, or is this this idea that just like Uber undermined um, the amount of money that taxi drivers could make. Doctors are now fearing that an online consultation will be at a fraction of the cost of a face-to-face, uh, therefore undoing their business model. What do you think? I think it's a bit of both. For healthcare practitioners, when you, when the first oath you take out of medical school is Hippocratic Oath, which is a longer oath than is most commonly known, but the most important phrase that everyone knows is that initial phrase, which is first do no harm. That's a very difficult one. And it's difficult because it's powerfully easy to understand. On the other hand, it's also a huge reason for people to first say no. Uh, so to your like broader question, is this some sort of uh, drive by doctors to protect their, essentially their monopoly or their oligopoly? You know, it's harder to say because there are lots of practitioners, even today, who will, st- especially older folks who sort of not really embrace technology to say, look, first do no harm. I don't know if this works. I, and I feel uncomfortable providing care online. And as a result, you know, I, I do think that I shouldn't do that. Now, is that intermixed with potential sort of economic reasons? Well, you know, if telemedicine takes off, it'll make it harder for me to run a business with a brick and mortar clinic. You know, my view is very different. My view is that those are actually complementary. Uh, there's no way to really have a conversation about how the medical fraternity is treating telemedicine without understanding the broader landscape and how healthcare is, is transforming. If you think about the infrastructure, use Singapore as a microcosm, but even more broadly, the the, the sort of the, the whole healthcare ecosystem, the clinics, the hospitals, the pharmacies, 
they were all built with the view of, I'd say, 20th century healthcare problems. And what I mean by that is it wasn't very long ago that the biggest cause of death in, in Singapore and Southeast Asia was not um, chronic disease. It was actually infectious disease or acute trauma from a car accident or some other sort of mishap. So the infrastructure we've built up is actually built for that kind of world, right, where you need to be in a hospital if you have trauma. You need to have surgeons. You need to have all the assets that hospitals have. But the reality is that's transformed itself very quickly. And the, real, the, the fact of the matter is we now live in a rapidly aging population. Again, back in the 60s, the, the, the rate of childbirth in this part of the world was astronomically high. And we're now in a part of the world that has probably the lowest replacement rate or the, the lowest uh, birth rate or fertility rate of any part of the world. So that's a very massive shift. But at the same time, you've got rapidly aging, rapidly aging population, and the, and the cause of death through chronic disease is now rapidly becoming the, the, the main driver for, for, for morbidity. So if you think about it, like all those factors have to be sort of thought about when you think about telemedicine and its role in this part of the world going forward. And that's why it's sort of a long conversation, but what I'm looping back to is I don't think it's as simple as saying some doctors are trying to protect a monopoly. I think it's a broader conversation where you speak with those providers and say, look, there's enough work to go around. But the fact of the matter is we need to make sure that we are allocating resources in the most effective way possible. Hospitals have a very core part to play in this, as do clinics. But for a lot of the people that are getting old in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an apartment or a condo by themselves, where mobility becomes a problem, for the bread and butter sort of issues, telemedicine becomes a very useful adjunct solution that can that can complement a lot of the stuff that we've built to date. But but isn't so, the oldest think, isn't the oldest generation also the most technologically challenged? So they are, and I think that's the conventional wisdom. Our data seems to suggest that it's probably overwrought. Right? Mm -hmm. We've done a lot of work. Um, you know, we've, as, as a company, we've been around for almost seven years. We've done a lot of work in the community where we've done community health screenings. And interestingly enough, the cohorts that tend to respond the fastest in terms of looking up their data, looking up the results, speaking to a doctor, they actually skew older than you'd suspect. Hmm. So, and I, I'd also think if you look at sort of uh, the cohorts of patients or people that tend to uh, work in, in service sectors, uh, they, they tend to, you know, there's a lot of older folks that are doing that. Um, you know, I look at the average drivers on, on a Gojek or a Grab, they tend to be older folks now, taxi drivers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, and, and those are very, those are those machines all have technology all around them, right? So I think that's the conventional wisdom piece that is maybe starting to become dated in terms of its applicability. I, I guess there's also this convenience aspect as well. It's, it's not an easy thing if you're an older person to get on the bus, go to the doctor's office, wait for over an hour um, to return. If you can sit in on your couch and uh, hit, hit the video tab and uh, have a quick conversation with the doctor and have a prescription mailed to you or, or delivered to you, uh, that's a much easier process, is it not? Absolutely. And I and going back to my earlier point, it's also very it's very relevant in the case where that older folk, older person has a chronic disease. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges that the medical community has with treating chronic disease is exactly what you said. People don't tend to take it seriously until it becomes an acute problem. You may have high, hyper, high cholesterol and you're OK, fine, I don't feel it until all of a sudden you have chest pain. Right. So one of the important things of, that telemedicine can do is it can provide more continuous monitoring. We talk about 
Hospitals and clinics are great for episodic care. When I am sick acutely, I go in, I get fixed, and I leave. For chronic care, where it's not just based on episodes, these things are continuous, it's not, they're, 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 they're actually pretty bad models. It's expensive, and it's not effective because people tend to forget. Um, if you can do this online, we have reminders, we have systems, we can use technology to help coax people into becoming far more compliant with their regimens as they get as they get older. Yeah, I want to circle back to what you were saying earlier, because you were touching on something quite interesting, which is um, the cost associated with hospital-centric care. Um, in, in the West, in the U.S. specifically, it's, it's uh, created escalating costs. It's out of control. Um, there's now this concern that uh, maybe they've lost the plot. Insurance or, insurers are in the middle of it. In Asia, many of the systems are public health care systems, and governments are recognizing we can't afford to go down that path. So any alternative process that lowers the costs and provides equivalent or even better care is going to be attractive to to governments and to organizations of this part of the world. Isn't that the case? I completely agree. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I believe there's already sort of work at high levels here in Singapore and other parts of Southeast Asia where very much health tech, um, telemedicine is a critical part of the overall patient journey and the workflows to do exactly that. And it goes, it's about being able to manage this escalating cost of care. We work a lot with insurance companies. Um, We see it on a a year on year basis, how increasing cost of care is starting to make it very difficult, even for rich corporates to to manage their corporate employees' uh, health benefits. Um, You magnify that over millions and millions of patients when when you look at health systems. And in particular in markets that are less developed than Singapore, where you know, you're just emerging and you start to see need for simpler solutions than creating and, and spending lots of money building up all these very expensive uh, facilities for, for, um, for primary care. My view is that in the next five to 10 years, you're going to see a wholesale shift. And frankly, COVID has accelerated that, so maybe you know, quicker than that, where it's just going to become mandatory. Um, you're going to see programs and plans where telemedicine-based uh, solutions, where people voluntarily add into them, are going to look, cost less, well, and you pay for that. Yeah, don't you find some irony in that? I mean, it, it, just to your point about chronic care, um, the idea of monitoring and managing people with, with heart disease, diabetes, other type of chronic diseases is actually better in a telemedicine or digital environment, yet the thing that seems to have triggered an accelerated use of telemedicine is, in fact, an infectious disease, where a lot of people are coming to you because they can't get into hospitals or clinics and therefore need a remote uh, safe way of getting consultation from a doctor. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And that's sort of the uh, ironies are always uh, across these, uh, these these sort of step changes. Um, yeah. I mean, look, I, I think it goes back to the first point we were discussing where you need to basically have a, a, a catalyzing event to get people to move from an old mental model to a new mental model. Right. The pain point was there. Um, there's significant, and it, we were seeing great adoption across the across our ecosystem in terms of places we work. And, but you know what's really accelerated that is exactly right. The irony of having a 20th century problem, an infectious disease, you know, generating demand for a 21st century solution, which is telemedicine. But what it's done is that because you said like you've cut off the old mental model, the old path um, for for a lot of reasons that you just mentioned. People have no choice but to use this service to try it out. Mm. And what we're finding is that the folks that do it are like, wow, this is great. I never really thought about it. Like I just sort of 
you know, I, go, I operate on automatic, but now I have no choice. I'm using it, and this is like so much more convenient. Well, yeah, uh, than using the offline. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, you know, I think uh, you know, my wife two and a half weeks ago had an eye infection, and we're in lockdown here in Singapore, and uh, she came back, couldn't get into the hospitals, couldn't into the clinics. Nobody would see her. She pops back here, uh, frustrated, sits down in the couch, and says, "Well, let's launch an app." And we found one. There, I guess, there are eleven providers here in Singapore, or something in that area, and we just launched one of them within. 15 seconds, a doctor popped up, took a picture of her eye, consulted with her on what was going on, made sure that that was what he thought it was, uh, prescribed to her uh, antibiotic drops, and then within 45 minutes, there was a knock on the door, and she held up a barcode, a QR code on her phone to acknowledge receipt of that prescription, sat down, put the dro drops in, and was, she was fine 12 hours later. And, and on top of that, the cost, it was $37.50 for both the prescription as well as the consultation compared to going to a private hospital or clinic here, which would be about $125 for uh, for a visit and then maybe as much as $60-70 for the medicine. So a fifth the cost in this case. Now I know if you go to the public sector, you can get in for $15, $20, sometimes less for, for to see somebody, but then there would be long lines. So there is an advantage at, on the cost front as well. Certainly that's a motivator for consumers. Uh, completely agree. Completely agree. I think the, the cost piece is, is a big driver. Um, and then the, but you, I'll, just, I'll use your analogy because I think it's, it's, it's so on point. It's the convenience ultimately, right? Mm -hmm. um, the one thing I'd like to sort of talk about with, with folks is when you're sick and it doesn't have to, you don't have to be chronically ill with something that's devastating. Even as to your point about your wife, like having an eye infection, at the very least, it's a hassle. It's something, it's additional level of stress you don't need, right? You've got right. other things that you're dealing with. Right. Why do I have to have, I wake up with this thing? So the fact is, if we can do anything, I think telemedicine is very good at this, of being able to say, okay, look, you got this problem, we're gonna solve it really quickly and we're gonna sort it out, it's, it's done. It just makes your life easier. And, and I think that convenience factor cannot be sort of understated it's a, it's a, or overstated. It's a big deal. Without being flippant, is this uh, pandemic just the disaster you were looking for? Uh, I can't say that because, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, there's, there's, there's been a lot, of, uh, a lot of bad things to come out. I, the way I tend to look at it, though, is, you know, in history tells, teaches us, right? Um, most calamities are, you know, they, they tend to give birth to things. Uh, there's always a silver lining and you have to look for it. Um, I do believe that, you know, what I've been saying earlier is you know, actually I think COVID just came up. I mean, the majority of reasons why I think telemedicine and frankly why we started our company have nothing to do with this infectious disease. Um, on the other hand, it's, it is great that we are in a good place where we can help manage patients, help alleviate their concerns, provide them with the support and the resources they need to get through a trying time. Um, but yeah, ultimately, it, it has helped catalyzing that change, um, that change in mental models, a change in approaches that I think are going to be important for this to take off and, and, and sort of establish itself in the rightful place when it comes to healthcare. We're in one of the wealthiest cities in the world, and obviously a government that's all across uh, this pandemic and managing COVID-19 uh, patients. Um, and, and the fact that you have the availability or options for this telemedicine at this point is wonderful. But how are other governments in the region responding to this? Do they see an equal opportunity to alleviate or waive any types of regulatory barriers, uh, give these applications a chance to see whether or not they can better manage or accompany the management of people uh, as we go through this crisis? 
Absolutely. I mean, uh, we are as a company across seven markets in Southeast Asia, South Asia and Southeast Asia. And I would say to a T, every single government that we are interacting with, that either directly or indirectly through our partners on the ground, are, you know, are, are positive in the way that these type of solutions, telemedicine in particular, can help uh, their populations during this time of need. Uh, and I, this is why I think it's exciting to be this, in this part of the world, right? I mean, a lot of the governments have been taking a listening, a wait and see approach, and they, but they have they've looked at the data and they're starting to move in the right direction because they said, look, this is something that we can really use to help our populations. Um, and it's it's I, you know, even though there's a lot of discussion and times you, you get frustrated with, oh, it's, is it this is it this group that's sort of holding back progress? I, I, you know, honestly, I feel like it, generally speaking, at least from the regulator perspective, I've been very pleasantly surprised. Uh, you have less of that here sometimes than you than you see in other in other quote unquote more developed markets. You've been pleasantly surprised in the course of the spread of the pandemic, or even prior to that. Well, no, no. So in terms of the way the regulators have, have been um, receptive yeah. to telemedicine. Yeah. So even before that, but I think it's accelerated for sure during the pandemic. Mm. So, you know, like I said, at least in Southeast Asia, most regulators have looked at this, have looked at telemedicine as something that that is going to help them meet the challenges of the next 20 years mm. in terms of the, the more secular trends that we were talking about earlier. Let me ask you beyond just your basic medical consultation. Um, typically, if you go in, you're you're dealing with some illness or some some condition. Lots of tests. It could be uh, you know imaging. There could be blood tests. Uh, other type of work. Um, where do you go for that? And and does that mean that telemedicine simply won't be able to cross that threshold? Or is the Internet of Things and all these devices that are connectable and wireless able to support perhaps some of the type of uh, consultation? that people receive in these environments? So uh, it, it, this, I mean, in my view, uh, it, what you just asked is exactly what the future should herald, right? Where um, telemedicine is not just a sideshow. It's not a marketing gimmick to drive people to buy more whatever, right? It's not a, it's not a lead generator. It's actually a very critical part of a well-thought-out uh, system of care. So to your point, you know, there are patients when you screen them that they need to, they'll need follow-ups, they need specialist treatment. Telemedicine can triage that and make it much more effective. One of the challenges that patients have even today is that they come in with, they may have an issue and they need to go see a GP to go get that diagnosed and they get referred to a specialist um, or they look at an app which gives them 50 or 60 different options. That does, that helps, but it's not necessarily helping them at the level where they can say, okay, I need to go to A and B. I don't understand any of this. It's very, it is frightening. It's confusing. I want a system that can help drive across those, those different, those different points. So I believe that, you know, IOT, to answer your second question is it, it will supplement, right? We have all of our, our devices and as we have more sophisticated consumer devices. I see the Apple Watches, the Fitbits, et cetera. That data, even though right now not, it's not clinical grade, will help start to provide additional data for uh, telemedicine consults. You know, we're doing a, a bit of work of that as well, where that helps us help, you know, makes the, the physician consultation much more pinpoint because you have data. Okay, well, I can sort of focus on this point as opposed to another. Um, I think we're still, you know, a little bit away for IOTs to be ubiquitous. Um, there's been a lot of talk about it. It's sort of kind of died down the last couple of months. Um, it'll come back. But I think what you need to build is first that patient flow, making sure that telemedicine is part of an overall system of care, not just something 
that's used as a, as a lead gen tool. Tell us a little bit, I mentioned before, about a dozen providers here in the Singapore market. Uh, tell us about MyDoc, your business. What makes it different? What's your business model and what are you banking on? So we really focus on, and you know, seven years ago, myself and Dr. Voss, my co-founder, you know, we are fairly unique in that having, having two clinicians as co-founders has really set the tone for what we see the value of, you know, or at least technology, health tech, and telemedicine to become. You know, for us, we are really focused on the clinical care component. So, you know, we've won numerous awards as such in terms of creating different protocols. Um, you know, we really do focus on how do we actually manage the patient from the triage perspective and then passing them on to a, a, a further care if necessary. And by having that focus, it allows us to scale. Like we, we are now, like I said, seven countries. We're looking at collaborations even outside of Asia. Um, and it's because we really are, um, the angle is around the actual platform, the clinical services, and then the care delivery algorithms that we've built. So innovation, care platforms, and, uh, and, and delivery are the key parts of what we build. And, and you also don't sell directly to consumer, do you? You can't download the app and get a consultation. I, I believe you sell through corporates. Is that correct? That's right. So our business model is B2B. Um, we do not direct. Do not, I mean, we go through customer aggregators and, and partners that actually may have large consumers on their own. But we really believe that in order to do a job effectively for large corporates and you know insurers, others, you have to have a product and a a team that understands that market very well. Um, and then we can sort of work, we can work with those large groups to help address the concerns and needs of their consumer population. Uh, you know, once again, I think you know, it goes back to this idea of specialization and focus. It's easy to try to do everything. Um, chances are you're not going to do everything well. Mm. So for us, it is that focus on, you know, let's, let's be a good, a good customer, a good manager of the clinical part, which is, which I think is key for us. Let me ask you one more question. Uh, looking 10 years down the line, what's your vision for what the Asia healthcare scene will look like? Is it going to be divided out across efficiencies or is it costs or is there some combination or, or what, what do you see in terms of um, what the world of healthcare looks like in this part of the world versus, let's say, Europe or the U.S.? What I would like to see it is that a, a sort of a very well integrated care model emerging. Uh, I'm very hopeful given what we see here in Singapore and the way that other countries around the region have been replicating parts of the model that we're going to get there. And what I mean by that is it's, it's you know, connecting the provision of care, which is, you know, telemedicine, digital health tools with the brick and mortar assets, the hospitals and clinics but also the provision of payment of care, right? I mean, one of the things that make all, makes all this work is having universal health schemes that are, that are, around, that are actually proliferating around the region as we, as we speak. When we launched MyDoc, I don't believe there was a single country except for Singapore. I may be wrong about one or two others that actually offered any sort of level of universal care. Now, the vast majority of countries have some sort of scheme either there or you know, sort of launched or, or fully deployed. And that's going to change things because what it does is it makes it very important for there to be a integrated system for care to be seamless, um, you know, consumer centric, because patients will have to be able to understand it and be able to use these care models. Um, and I, I believe that, you know, in order for all those things to come together, technology, health tech, telemedicine will be a very critical part of that. Uh, transformation. And are these universal health schemes focused mostly on primary care versus uh, curative? 
Great question. Actually, it's, it's actually very, it's, it's a very good question for the simple reason that most of these schemes start off for focusing on catastrophic care, right? The number one cause of, of, of people falling into poverty is our healthcare bills. Mm. And that's not, that's usually because you're, you know, you're hit with an unfortunate diagnosis of cancer or something that really sort of really makes it difficult for you to, uh, to work, et cetera. That being said, and the inkling is, and that's, uh, is that those care programs are now starting to, are starting to go into the primary care space. And that's because of the chronic disease, et cetera, that need to be managed. Um, until now, it's been very challenging for governments to pay for primary care because it was just very difficult to audit, to monitor, to manage all these sort of uh, clinics around large countries. With health, health technology and telemedicine, it's much, much easier because you've got audit trails, you've got all the sort of needs, the, the systems in place. Money, you can make sure and guarantee it's being spent for on, on good care, on good outcomes. So, yeah, I, I believe that's also going to happen in the next next several years. You clearly are an optimist. And uh, in this time of pandemic, it's nice to see a few silver linings out there. So we thank you for your time, Sneal. I, I, we wish you great luck. No, thank you so much. It's been uh, fantastic to be on it. That was my conversation with Dr. Snehal Patel, co-founder and CEO of MyDoc, a Singapore-based telemedicine and digital healthcare service. My takeaway from this episode, old habits die hard. At least that seems to be the case with most consumers who conservatively err on the side of in-person visits to the doctor's office. But there are other factors in play as well. Government regulators have resisted and sometimes blocked digital solutions for fear of malpractice or misdiagnosis. Doctors haven't necessarily objected. And as this conversation is revealed, digital solutions have the potential to disrupt. Retailers felt the pinch with e-commerce. Taxi drivers fell victim to Uber. Doctors, at least in the private sector, should be rightfully concerned. And speaking of profit motive, let's not forget the med tech and pharmaceutical manufacturers. They've profited handsomely from decades of increased reliance on chronic care and all the devices and treatments that go with it. For me, the story of telemedicine calls into question the larger tale of a healthcare system gone rogue. Infectious diseases, as recent circumstances have shown, still pose a real threat. And yet the lion's share of government and private sector investment has for years been directed at the treatment of chronic ailments. Perhaps this pandemic is just the jolt governments in the region needed. In the U.S. and most of Europe, investment in hospital-based care has passed the point of no return. In Asia, and particularly in developing markets, it's not too late. If one thing has been proven by the recent COVID-19 crisis, it's that people and systems can change when lives are on the line or services are in short supply. Now it's up to governments to follow through, rethink the allocation of healthcare spend, and deploy, wherever possible, digital solutions that alleviate versus complicate the provision of care. There's need, says Dr. Patel, for what he calls an integrated care model that weighs equally the importance of sound primary care and the delivery of acute care. If the challenges of administering widespread community-based primary care can be improved through big data and analytics, and if solutions like telemedicine can triage patients and reduce the burden on hospitals, then we may just have the makings of a viable universal healthcare solution. Perhaps it's Asia's time to show the way. 
That's it for this episode of Inside Asia. Feeling cared for? What are your reservations when it comes to relying more on technology and less on doctors when it comes to your medical treatment? Tell us what you think. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Leave us a message or start a conversation. If you don't subscribe to the Inside Asia podcast, please do by visiting us at www.insideasiapodcast.com or download any or all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And lastly, if you can't find time to listen, subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Go to www.insideasiaadvisors.com, scroll to the bottom, enter your name and email address, and start receiving our updates. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.